And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me today. As we've discussed before, over the last uh, two centuries at least, uh, we've seen a drastic repositioning in our culture of the relationship between faith and knowledge. Uh, We now reached a point where they are frequently seen as opposed to one another. So if you have knowledge, you need not you have no faith. And if you have faith, uh, well, you don't need, knowledge is irrelevant. Um, these, this course is a departure from historic Christian thinking, especially Catholic thinking about the relationship between faith and reason and faith and knowledge. Uh, today, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about the integration of faith and reason. My guest, uh, Dr. Douglas Kreese, is the co-author of Two Wings, Integrating Faith and Reason. He's a professor of philosophy at Gonzaga University, and you can follow his work at Douglas Kreese, that's K-R-I-E-S dot com. And Dr. Kreese, good to have you with me. Thanks. Well, it's very good to be here, Al. Thanks for having me on. Is it true that, uh, in terms of popular culture anyways, that the relationship between faith and reason has been, uh, they've now appeared contrary, whereas in the past there's been at least in Catholic thinking, uh, uh, well, as you say, two wings, uh, <laughs> two wings on the bird. Uh, it's certainly true in uh, popular culture in uh, Europe and uh, North America, especially in the United States. Uh, I would say it's also true in academic culture. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. You know, w- why is it in academic culture uh, w- when, in fact, they have access to the best thinking that uh, Catholics, you know, have presented, uh, going back to the great synthesis of uh, Thomas Aquinas, and Catholic thinkers have largely tried to maintain that uh, integration between faith and reason. Is it because they simply reject, or have they re- reject the Catholic for- formulation of the relationship? Have they redefined these categories differently? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the legacy of the Enlightenment, um, uh, Enlightenment attacks on revealed religions Mm -hmm. of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And uh, it also has to do with a a great uh, faith, if you will, in the ability of uh, contemporary natural science to find truth, all truth, and... um, the view that, in comparison with that, uh, faith just isn't worth very much. Mm-hmm. How widespread is it to believe that science, the, the methods of the natural sciences, is the only reliable source of knowledge? Oh, I think it's very widespread. Um, this is the view that we would call rationalism in the book, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that uh, human reason all by itself can find uh, all we need to know about truth. Uh, there, the corresponding position, or the uh, opposite position, I guess we should say, uh, we call fideism in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the view that one believes um, without uh, any recourse to reason at all, and uh, uh, one believes uh, sometimes even despite uh, yeah. reason. Mm-hmm. Now, you do run into fideists um, here and there, um, especially in uh, religious circles, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's a much more rare position. Okay. 
Well, let's go to the difference between faith and reason, because they are two different uh, things, but even if they are uh, joined together at some point, what is faith? What is reason? What's the difference between them? Well, um, so when we're talking about uh, reason in the book, um, reason is the ability not only to make claims about what's true, but to know why the claims are true, i.e. to know the premises that imply the conclusions. Mm -hmm. So if one knows the premises and then the premises are true and the, the structure of the argument is correct, then the conclusion must be true. So uh, rationalism is the view that we can know all of the premises that establish the conclusions. Faith is willing to say that, um, well, perhaps uh, I don't understand, I don't grasp the, uh, the uh, principles always or the premises always, but I accept the conclusions uh, on the authority of the one who has shown them to me. Okay. Um, that's sort of uh, considering the problem from the point of view of, of propositions, okay. of what truth knows, the doctrines. We also talk in the book a lot about the attitudes of faith and reason. That is to say, reason uh, is, is sort of exemplified by Socrates. It, it always asks another question, and it's not willing to accept answers until uh, all of the questions uh, uh, have been satisfactorily explored. Uh, faith is more like Abraham or uh, Mary in the mm -hmm. New Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, one hears the call and one responds on the authority of the one who is making the call. So there's trust involved uh, with faith. And so the, the assumption then with reason is that it requires no trust or no faith. It's sufficient mm -hmm. in, okay, in, in and of itself. Most of what we know, we know on the basis of somebody else's authority. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never figured out the distance of the sun from the earth. I, I kind of accept that uh, because I trust the authorities who have worked on it. A lot of our knowledge is that way, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, most of what we uh, claim to know, we know on the authority of someone else. Yeah. So um, that's the inadequacy of the rationalist position. Uh, it thinks, it makes these claims that we shouldn't believe anything unless we know all of the premises for these things. But of course, it would be impossible to live that right. way. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, so then, what is common to faith and reason? Well, they both make claims about what's true. And uh, uh, so they're both, uh, as, a, as it were, truth-generating activities. Uh, the believer uh, thinks that what he holds, that what he accepts, that what he trusts in is most certainly true. And the, uh, the reasoner mm -hmm. uh, also believes that uh, those things that he or she has actually understood really are true. And uh, so sometimes uh, these things are, are simply, you can confine them to different realms and so forth. We believe in the incarnation. Uh, we, uh, uh, we can reason to the truth of the Pythagorean theorem. But sometimes they make claims that are overlapping, 
and that's when it really gets interesting to talk about the integration of faith and reason. What's also the same about them is that, you know, it's the same person who believes who also thinks, and it's the same person who thinks who also believes. And, and you know, unless you're, you're capable of being schizophrenic, you have to put these things together. You have to integrate them into a whole uh, uh, viewpoint. And that's uh, what we're trying to explain in the book. So, uh, so the the same person who thinks uh, is the person who believes the, the person who believes the same person who thinks. So, isn't it difficult then for those who deny the importance of faith? Wouldn't it be difficult for them to entirely justify their own knowledge claims based exclusively on reason? because so much of what they know is based on trusting the authority of others. Well, I think so, Um, and that's uh, why I think the rationalist position ultimately fails. Uh, The rationalist is inconsistent in the end in that he or she refuses to admit how much um, he or she actually does accept on uh, faith. Mm you say that the the most interesting areas are the areas where they uh, make claims about the same things, the same objects of knowledge. Uh, let's let's go to the the. Uh, well, you here, you have you in chapter three. You offer a preliminary account of how the two wings here, faith and reason, work together. Uh, why don't you go ahead and and lay out uh, your illustration for this? Um. Well, okay. With respect to overlapping areas, uh, for example, I mean, there are, um, um, as we know in our time, there are all sorts of claims about the universe that we exist in, mm-hmm. that we live in. Um, now, if God is the author of faith and the author of reason, if God created us as rational beings, but also created us as potentially faithful beings. Uh, that means that both faith and reason can be traced ultimately to God, and God doesn't contradict himself. And so faith and reason uh, have to go hand in hand. They have to be consistent with each other. If we believe correctly and if we uh, reason uh, correctly, we should come to conclusions that are uh, uh, compatible. Uh, with each other. However, uh, as you know, the claim is frequently made that faith contradicts reason, or Mm -hmm. reason contradicts faith. And uh, it's one thing to assert um, that they must go together. It's quite another thing sometimes to show how they do go together. And so this is, uh, when I say this is a most interesting thing, well, you know, at least if you're a philosophy teacher, this is the most interesting area. Um, how to find, um, uh, when there are apparent contradictions or inconsistencies or simply tensions between the two, um, how to re-examine the arguments, how to go back and show how they might be uh, integrated. And uh, these are great discussions. Now, in some cases, the contradictions may be only apparent, right? I mean, in, um, in, in all cases, they yeah. have to be only apparent. Okay. 
Um, but it's sometimes, uh, you know, challenging to show how they are uh, only apparent. Okay. And this uh, can be very fruitful because, you know, uh, you have to reexamine your uh, rational arguments. You have to reexamine how you've understood the scriptures. Um, you, you know, it's a great way to uh, check your reasoning uh, and your and your believing and uh, to have confidence in your uh, argument. We're looking at the uh, two wings, Integrating Faith and Reason. That's the name of the book. And our focus is, again, on the relationship between faith and reason. My guest, Dr. Douglas Kreese, is the co-author of the book and a professor of philosophy at Gonzaga University. We're going to continue in just a moment here. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Douglas Kreese. He is the author, a co-author of Two Wings, Integrating Faith and Reason. And we've been talking about, again, uh, definitions of faith, reason, their relationship, uh, how they can be integrated, how they uh, are often uh, pitted against one another. And we're looking at examples of claims that, uh, let's take the, the big claim, and that is the existence of God. Catholics believe that uh, God's existence can be demonstrated uh, through reason. Uh, this is denied by many, uh, certainly atheist uh, philosophers. Uh, how do you go about m- moving that discussion forward? Well, uh, in the book, we consider both uh, arg- uh, rational or philosophical uh, arguments for God's existence as well as against God's existence. Uh, we consider the the classical arguments uh, of Thomas, Aquinas especially, and of Anselm and so forth. Um, we explain what those arguments are in, a, in a, a very kind of basic way, talk about the principal objections uh, and responses to those objections, um, we also talk about the um, the arguments against the existence of God, and um, especially the argument from evil. That's always a big one sure. that students want to talk about. Right. And um, talk about how uh, Christians and theists generally um, uh, can respond uh, in a compelling manner to those uh, arguments. Well, why don't we do that? Um, why don't we stay with the problem of evil for a while, since that is the most vexing question? Okay. And um, uh-huh. uh, I think most most apologists would acknowledge that uh, you know the uh, the problem of evil is difficult to explain. It certainly stretches uh, both our reasoning and our imagination. What is the atheist? And by the way, is is this argument? against God's existence, uh, arguing from evil, is that a matter of logical necessity that he cannot exist uh, if, in fact, these uh, premises are true? Or is it a a more uh, inductive argument? I look around, and it seems to me that uh, the proposition that God doesn't exist is more fitting, uh, given what I see about the abundance of suffering and evil in the world. Go ahead. Well, the argument takes both forms. 
uh, there are people that say that uh, if God exists, there could be no evil whatsoever in the in the world. Yeah. But of course, there is at least some. Therefore, God doesn't exist. That's a pretty tough argument to defend. Right. And uh, I think uh, among philosophers, there are very few, uh, even committed atheists, who think that that argument's going to uh, hold water. Uh, but there is the uh, the looser or uh, the inductive argument that says, well, it, it just seems to me that there's too much evil, or it's, it's a certain kind of evil. And uh, the Christians, uh, and not just Christians, but Jews and Muslims have the same problem, uh, philosophical question here. And um, in the, there have kind of been two important uh, responses to this. And uh, basically, the problem is, well, who's to say that there's too much, or if it's not the wrong sort, if it's not the right sort of evil, or uh, you know, it seems to be that we're judging by human standards mm-hmm. and, uh, and our own particular standards. Um, in particular, it's uh, been pointed out that uh, well, there's the free will defense that it seems impossible for God to make human beings free without making human beings such that they could sin or do evil. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, maybe one reason why there's this kind of evil in the world is that God thought it was uh, so important that human beings be free, uh, i.e. have the capacity to love and respond with love to each other and to God, that God made us um, in such a way, had to make us in such a way, as it were, uh, that it was possible for us to do evil or to to sin. Um, You know, if we want to be free, we have to accept the moral, the possible moral consequences of that. But not all... Moral evil. Right. It isn't apparent, though, that all uh, causes of suffering are a result of uh, human moral choices. Yeah. Right. So that that uh, the free will defense is uh, would speak only to some kinds of evil. Although I must say, uh, when I talk with people, um, uh, you know, those who don't believe and are sort of committed non-believers, it's usually as a result of uh, the experience of some grave moral evil. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's what's really important to them. But, uh, as you say, it, it doesn't answer all the questions uh, about evil. But you can make a distinction um, between moral evil and non-moral evil? Sure. Okay. Uh, you know, bad things happen as a result of earthquakes and floods yeah. and so forth, uh, as opposed to uh, human sinfulness. The other, um, and I think, well, it, equally um, uh, profound um, response to the problem of evil by Christians and Jews and Muslims, is that, um, you know, uh, the fact of the matter is that, at least for some people, suffering makes them better. Um, There's a character-building process that goes on with experiencing uh, evil. I happen to be uh, uh, teaching uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago mm-hmm. to students right now, and he talks in, in one point there uh, at the center of the book about how, you know, although he hated it at the time and how difficult it was and what a struggle life inside the camps was, 
at the end of it all, uh, he says, thank you, God, for putting me in the camps, because I never would have been the kind of person that I became if I hadn't been there. Hmm. Now, if, you, if you know how to suffer well, evil can make us better. Um, and that's another uh, thing that we uh, have to ask. So, so we come back to the original uh, premise, you know, if God exists, there would be no evil in the world. Well, we can think of good reasons why God might have permitted some evils in the world. This is the soul-making. Soul that, mm-hmm. it, it seems that, well, how do we know that he doesn't have good reasons for the other evils right. in the world? We can point to so, instances, though, of evil that uh, break people as well as build people, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, that's a, a possibility, yeah. um, um, and Solzhenitsyn ad- admits as much. Sure. Most people didn't respond the way I did. So, you know, well, why is that? Uh, I mean, was there some sort of a moral failing on the part of the sufferer? Um, uh, you know, couldn't uh, complete the test? Um, it's, it's, it's hard to know. And we can't claim, and this is, we try to make this clear in the book, we don't know the reason for all evils. Nobody's making that claim. The only claim is that God might have reasons. We can see uh, the rationale for some evils. And so we we can't accept the premise then uh, as established that if God exists, there would be no evil. And uh, so, consequently, the argument doesn't prove the atheological right. position, right. as its advocates claim. Now, we're not claiming that, you know, this is an, an easy thing, only that it's not a logical uh, proof. Right, right. Uh, I would also say, and my co-author, uh, Dr. Clayton, is always very good on this, um, it, when, when we're talking with people who are suffering, and as a result of suffering, are, uh, you know, they question their faith in God, and and they're angry at God, or uh, disappointed in God, and so forth. You know, I I wouldn't trot out these arguments uh, to try to help such people. Right. Such people need is uh, sympathy, and they need uh, a ministry, um, and that comes from love of neighbor, and they need to uh, to experience uh, that, mm-hmm. and um, you know. So, um, and and I guess I don't. One last thing is that um, Christianity, in particular, uh, acknowledges the very real presence of suffering right. in our lives, and it says that it's defeated by Christ on the cross. Yeah, this, in fact, this is where and I was going to go is next. Something we have to. Yeah. We have to uh, always uh, keep in mind. Every now and again, I run into a Christian who's suffering, maybe only a little bit, and they're all distraught. And sometimes I kind of want to say, "Well, well, you know, what did you think you were signing on for?" I mean, <laughs> suffering's part of the deal, right? Um, um, you know, it's not pleasant, or, or I don't believe God wants us to suffer, but um, try to suffer. Well, try to turn the suffering into something positive, um, and I, it's possible to do no. that. Well, it, it's all. 
I don't know when. It wasn't early on, but somewhere after I'd been a, a Christian, maybe 10, 15 years, it, it dawned on me that when it comes to this problem of evil, Christians actually can say that God himself so recognized the enormity of the problem that he himself uh, inserted himself into the process <laughs> to, to carry that burden with us. Uh, so it seems to me that that has some uh, at least imaginative value. Uh, it, it, it's, there's a symmetry to the Christian response to evil that I think is lacking in other world religions. I think that's uh, true. So all of the monotheistic religions have the problem. Uh, they have to deal with the question of the origin of evil. Dualistic religions, you know, treat this, uh, uh, it's easier for them mm-hmm. than they have other problems, but right. it's, it's easier to just say, well, there's a, a source of good and a source of evil, and, and that's how it is. Um, if you're going to insist that there's only one God, and that God's responsible for all that is, and then, well, you have a hard time, well, it's a, it's a challenge to explain the origin of, the, of evil. I don't think it's impossible, but it's hard. Um, but to go back to your point, you know, if you study the, the fathers, they're very good on this, that they say not uh, only does God um, become incarnate in order to help us deal with the problem of evil, in fact, when God made human beings, God foresaw. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Dr. Kreese, thank you so much. We're out of time, unfortunately. We'll talk again. Two Wings, Integrating Faith and Reason.